Hey, um, I'm excited today as we continue on in the book of James. Last week we started the book of James in chapter one and we got as far as four verses in. <laughs> so yeah, um, but today we're going to get a little further. We are going to pick up right there in verse five. So go ahead, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to James chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, there's lots of Bible apps online you can use. And of course we have in the shelves or on the shelves on both sides in the back of the auditorium, we have Bibles there that you can borrow. But if you don't own a Bible, that's not for you to borrow, it's for you to keep. We want to bless you because we want everyone to have a copy of God's Word that you can take home and pour over and study and dig into and be fed on a regular basis. We believe in the authority, the inerrancy, the sufficiency, the power of God's Word. It is transformative in our lives, it teaches us about Him, teaches us about ourselves. And we need it. Amen. Having said all that, I just want to pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We're so thankful that you didn't leave us uh, to try and figure this stuff out on our own, that you have left us with your word and with your spirit. And so, Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work right now, guiding what I say, guiding what we hear, and that you would open our eyes to see truth. You would open our minds to understand, uh, that you would open our hearts to receive, and that we would walk it out and not be hearers only, but be doers also. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we, we discussed from the opening verses of the book of James how God uses afflictions and sufferings in our lives, trials is what he called that, to test, prove, and refine our faith. This week, we will see how James contrasts this against the ways we face trials of temptation to sin and the wisdom that God has given us that helps us resist and say no to sin. So we're going to go ahead, we're going to dive straight in in verse 5 from James chapter 1 this morning. Here we go. If any of you lacks wisdom, pause, we're going to stop right there. We got really far. We're going to take the whole day on those few words. Just kidding. If any of you lacks wisdom, we're going to pause there for a moment because I just want show of hands. Here's an opportunity for a display of humility. Have you ever been in a moment in your life, a decision, a conversation where you feel like I lack wisdom right now? I love the honesty from the body of Christ because I feel that way plenty of times. And the beauty of what the Apostle James has written to us in this letter, written to the early church, but has been passed on to us and is for us, is that he says, hey, if you lack wisdom, you can ask for it. And let's continue and see what he says there. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Have you ever had a decision that's difficult? Ever had a relational dynamic that's challenging? Family issues and or work issues or friendship issues decisions. Do we go? Do we stay? Do I take this job, that job? Do we move or not? All these decisions and even decisions that are way less weighty than those decisions require wisdom. And the good news is that James is showing us right here that we don't have to relegate ourselves 
only to the wisdom of man, which is so extremely limited, but we have the wisdom of God available. He says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives it generously, freely, without reproach, meaning God's not sitting there going, I guess, but listen, he's not going, "Uh, really, you're asking me one more time for wisdom? He's not reproaching or rebuking us. He's not coming to us with any kind of opposition when we ask him for wisdom. To the extent that James says he gives it generously, the only thing is we have to make sure that when we ask for it, we believe he's giving it to us. And he says if we doubt that he does, then we're double-minded, unstable, and that we ought not think we'll get anything from the Lord. How simple, how clear-cut, how practical is this, what James is telling us, and this is how much of his letter goes, wherein he gives us an application point that's so simple. For us, it's simply this. Ask God for wisdom daily. Ask God for wisdom daily, even beyond daily, moment by moment, decision by decision, meeting by meeting. If you're starting a meeting at work, why not on your way to the meeting or before the meeting or a moment by yourself with the Lord, just go, Lord, give me wisdom in this. If you work for an employer, wouldn't it benefit your employer if you had God's wisdom in a moment? If you have difficult or challenging or nuanced relationships, which all of us do, Wouldn't it benefit those relationships if we had the wisdom of God in those moments? And the beauty is all we have to do is take three seconds to say, God, would you give me wisdom? I don't even know that that took three seconds. That's all it takes to say, God, would you give me wisdom in this right now? I need you. It's the the display in the New Testament of what we see in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 where the proverb says, trust in the Lord with all your heart Lean not into your own understanding, meaning don't put your weight on you and your knowledge, your understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Why don't we do that? Why don't we ask for wisdom more often? Well, I think one of the reasons is what we see there in Proverbs that we rely on ourselves too much. We do rely on our own understanding. And listen, God has given us minds, he's given us intellect, he's given us cognitive abilities that we should use, that we should reason, we should try and use knowledge to figure things out, but we should rely on God's wisdom in any given moment, in any given decision. And so we ask for it, and when we ask for it, we then from James walk as if he gave it to us. He said if you ask for it, he's going to give it to you unless you doubt So the next time that you have whatever challenging situation it is, whether it's at work or home or relationships, whatever it might be, stop and go, God, I need your your wisdom in this moment. Would you give it to me? I believe because of your word that you will. Thank you, and I will walk it out. And then move forward like God is giving you wisdom, and then watch him do it. Watch him give you wisdom. Watch him help you think of things you didn't think of before. Watch him guard your tongue and help you not say things that you're going to regret. Watch him help you say things that you hadn't thought of. The wisdom of God is available to us. One of the reasons we don't walk in it is because because we rely on ourselves and our own wisdom. Another reason we don't walk in it is because of, I think, what James is pointing out here. For whatever reason, oftentimes we don't believe God will give it to us. 
If it's because of sin and a guilty conscience, maybe we think God doesn't want to give it to us or just lack of faith that God does want to give it to us. And I'm careful right there to, to, to be careful with the metrics of how much faith is enough faith. Jesus said, if you got a mustard seed, you can speak to a mountain. And so all of that to say, if you are talking to God, if you are speaking to a being that you cannot see, that's a mustard seed of faith. And so, Ask God for wisdom daily, moment by moment, and trust that he will give it to you generously and that he's not mad at you for asking. He's actually delighted that you're depending on him. Now, James, this letter is commonly sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Some of that is because James wrote this letter in the same Hebrew style as the book of Proverbs, which is called a string of pearls or a strand of pearls. If you've read through Proverbs before, you can sit there and you can go subject, 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 where they're changing what they're talking about every two lines. And they're going through these strand of pearls, all these little nuggets of wisdom that you can take and, talk, uh, take and walk out. James feels very similar. He wrote in the strand of pearl style where he goes, I'm going to talk about this for a second. All right, now I'm going to talk about this for a second. Now I'm going to talk about this for a second. And if you're not aware of that, you'll try and sometimes draw connections that aren't there. And you'll feel a little bit of spiritual whiplash by the how, how frequently and how quickly he changes subjects. Because we're going from him talking about count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And when steadfastness has had its perfect work, you'll be perfect, lacking nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives freely or generously without reproach and don't doubt and he'll give it to you if you're double-minded if you doubt. Okay, now steering wheel rips over another way and he just talks about something else completely different. Verse nine, let's see what he's got. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Lowly brother, does that mean like height challenge, short folk? No, that's not what he's saying. The lowly brother is poor. Fiscally, monetarily poor is what he's talking about here as it's contrasted against the rich. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, which is interesting because if you in these days talk to a, a poor Jew in first century, they would not be one who is considered having opportunity to exalt in anything. They're humble, they're lowly, they're poor, they don't have much. And James is saying, hey, if that's you, Boast in your exaltation. What is the exaltation there? I think possibly it's the fact that their dependence must be on God, not on their wealth, not on their status or their acclaim. Their, their dependence must be on the Lord. So he says, boast in your exaltation. Verse 10, and the rich in his humiliation, saying boast in your humiliation. That's a, what? That's a little confusing. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This string of pearls is shifting from talking about trials and tests, talking about asking God for wisdom into an evaluation of the position of the heart of all of us, depending on where we are in these statuses. Now, I'm going to ask you not to raise your hands 
And when I ask this question, I'm also going to ask you, please don't point at anybody because it'll get real awkward real fast if we do. Who in this room, who watching online, who out in the comments, who among us is the rich that this is talking about? If you're thinking of someone other than you, you're not being honest with yourself. We're talking about fiscal riches. Now, you might be thinking, oh, Stephen, hold on just a minute. You don't know my life. You haven't seen my bank account. You don't know how we're struggling to make ends meet. You don't know how we're living paycheck to paycheck. You don't know how we're struggling to try and pay the bills. And I would just say to you, if you haven't wondered how you're going to eat today, you're rich. Compared to the rest of the world, the billions of people on planet Earth, if you're not wondering, am I going to get to eat today, you are rich. And if we feel like we are not rich, it is because we have been cultured by American culture to train us that unless we have all these bells and whistles and all these trinkets and toys, that we are poor or don't have enough, that it's inadequate. In fact, it is a deep-rooted discontentment that comes by comparing ourselves to others wherein we feel like we are poor. And we are not. We are so, so extremely blessed, so very prosperous. If you hit the jackpot lottery of being born in or moving to America, you're rich. And sometimes we don't feel rich because of our self-imposed discontentment habits. I'll say that again. Sometimes we feel poor because of our self-inflicted habits that are fed by discontentment by trying to keep up with the Joneses. I mean, what's so great about the Joneses anyways? The Smiths are way better (laughs) as it pertains to general American names. And the Smiths were at the last service, so I couldn't make that joke now. I'm kidding. If you're you're here and your name is Jones, you're awesome too, I'm sure. I have some friends with Jones's last name back in Arkansas. All that to say, you're rich, you're blessed, and I want to challenge that because we could identify improperly with what's going on in this passage when he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with his scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is James telling us, hey, your riches, us, our prosperity, our money, our status, our possessions, our homes, our cars, all that stuff can be gone like that. In fact, in light of eternity, not only can it be gone like that, it is gone like that. And even if you give your whole life working to build these things, a generation, two generations from now, no one remembers it. This is the whole book of Ecclesiastes, right? Where the teacher is saying, I've had it all, I've done it all, and it's all meaningless It's all like chasing the wind because when you die, you hand it off to someone else anyways, and what are they going to do with it? How many of you know details and information about your great-great-grandparents? 
I don't even know my great-great-grandparents' names. I don't even know my great-grandparents' names. I know my grandparents' names and love them dearly and miss them. They're with the Lord right now, celebrating in glory. But that's how quick all of it fades away. Like a flower under the scorching sun. Stop putting all your eggs in the basket of your possessions and your wealth. Instead, exalt in your humiliation the fact that before the Lord, your finances and your status mean nothing. I blew a little too hard out of the left side of my mouth. Maybe that was like God mic drop. (laughs) These things mean nothing before the Lord. No matter how much money you have or don't have, status you have or don't have, before the Lord, all of us are spiritually poor. This is why in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Jesus opens by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they'll see God. You'll inherit the kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth, the lowly. This is why in the book of Revelation, John, uh, Jesus uh, to the apostle John speaking to the churches, one of them, he said, you think you're rich, but you don't realize that you're, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. It's easy for us to get there, guys. He tells them both to boast in something or to take pride in something. To the poor, he says, boast in his exaltation or his high position. And then he tells the rich to boast in their low position. James is encouraging us not to take pride in wealth, but in our identification in Christ. What would appear in the eyes of the world as a humiliating thing, right? The world sees identification in Christ, faith in Christ as a humiliating thing. And he's saying, that's what we glory in. That's what we boast in. This is where Paul says, I boast in the cross of Christ. Amen? Now, let's continue reading in James chapter 1. Let's pick up where we were in verse 12 and buckle up because the steering wheel is about to jerk and change subjects one more time. Yet this time, he's going off of this feeder road that's running parallel here, and he jerks us back up onto the ramp really quick to get back up on the highway of what he was talking about earlier being trials and tests. Let's look at verse 12. Blessed is the man. Notice he just stopped talking about prosperity, wealth, riches, and he says, Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Oh, there's that word from last week. Who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, another word from last week, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. These two words, trial and test, remember we talked about last week where God will ordain the turning up of the heat in our life to release the impurities that will float to the top, that dross that can be scraped off so that we can be refined and purified and look more and more like the image of Jesus Christ. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast in that trial, in that test, and unlike the rich man who will fade away with his riches and be forgotten, this person will receive the crown of life, the crown eternal, that we will 
enduring these trials, enduring these tests, remaining faithful and steadfast before the Lord, we inherit glory with him wherein we don't receive just the trinkets and toys and things in this life that we work so hard to acquire and accumulate that will burn in an instant. Instead, we receive a crown in glory where we behold the face of Christ for eternity. Beholding the glory of Jesus Christ worth infinitely more than the most expensive thing that can be bought on this earth. He's saying, hey, don't glory in this petty little flammable, destructible stuff. There's an eternal crown waiting for you if you can endure trials, if you can endure hardship, if you can remain steadfast. Blessed is that man. And he goes on in verse 13, and he says this, let no one say when he is tempted, now there's a different word that didn't appear in the verses we read last week. We had trial and test, but notice how he's doing something different here. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. A few things I want to point out here in this passage. Notice as he jumps back in on the, the roadway, if you will, the highway, talking back about or talking about what he was earlier, discussing trials and tests, that refining process to, to purify and strengthen and prove our faith. He then introduces this other word, temptations. And he says, when that happens, when you are tempted, don't you dare say that you're tempted by God. In fact, if you look throughout scripture, you will see testing and trial as a refrain or a motif throughout all of scripture. In fact, the first century Jew would have been very familiar with and very comfortable with, very aware of this motif of testing throughout the Old Testament. In fact, you only have to get to the second chapter of the whole book to see the very first test, wherein Adam and Eve are in the garden and they are given a choice. There's a tree of life and there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God tells them, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you do, you will surely die. There is a test, a decision set before them. And they were deceived. They were tricked. And they sinfully chose to disobey God. And they failed that test. Adam disobeyed God and welcomed sin and death into the world. And here we are thousands of years later, bearing and feeling and living in the consequences of that decision. Yet if you turn to Romans chapter 5, you can read about a second Adam. The second Adam named Jesus Christ, who unlike the first Adam who failed his test, Jesus passed his test, his many tests. 
his 33 years on this life without sin, his test where he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, wherein Satan said, hey, I'll give this if you do this, or hey, turn the bread or turn the stones into bread because you got to be starving, or uh, hey, I'm going to give you all of this if you'll only bow down and worship me. And in those three moments of testing where he was tempted to sin, Jesus answered all of those temptations the way we all should answer temptation with, it is written. Jesus passed those tests and every test, all the foolish men who tried to trick him and trap him in arguments, he answered with the wisdom of God and he passed those tests. All the other moments of temptation that are not written down that he must have faced, he passed those tests. The strongest moment of testing when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's going to be crucified, knowing what he's about to go through, doesn't want to be crucified doesn't want to take nails in his hands, doesn't want to be beaten, doesn't want to be whipped 39 times where his flesh would be torn from his body, doesn't want the crown of thorns, doesn't want everything he's about to go through, dying on a cross and cries out to the Father, Father, if there's any other way we can do this, if there's any other way, sweating drops of blood because of the anxiety, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And he passes the test by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This refrain of testing throughout the Bible, James is well aware of. And he says, blessed is the one who remains steadfast. Yet, when one is tempted, let him not say that that's from God. That he's tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted, nor can God tempt anyone to sin. James is drawing a very fine line here to help us in wisdom discern the difference between testing, which is from God, and temptation, which is from Satan. And this conversation about trials and tests, James, very aware of that testing motif, very aware that Jesus was tested and temptation was a part of Jesus' test, well aware of that, wants to draw a line in the sand and say, listen, when you are tempted, you dare not say you were tempted by God because he cannot and will not do that. But wait, James, wait a minute. If we are to count it all joy when we, fall, when we meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of our faith produces patience, meaning God wants us to grow in patience. He wants that fruit in our lives through these trials. Then doesn't that mean that that temptation, if it's a temptation trial, came from God? No, it, it does not. And if that, that, that Doesn't that trial imply, if it's in a moment of temptation, that it's from God? Well, the test is from God, but the temptation is from Satan. And this is such a fine line that we need to be sensitive to and pay attention to. God is pure and good in nature, and he cannot tempt someone to sin. But in his wisdom and his care and his goodness, he does test us to refine and prove us. Yet he cannot be the agent of tempting and remember this, this is one thing we must keep in mind. God doesn't test us apart from our best interest. That whenever God brings us through a test or a trial, he doesn't have failure intended for us. 
He has victory intended for us. He has proving of our faith intended for us. He has good intentions for us in testing. It is the enemy who has destruction in mind for us when we are uh, tempted. And if our trial or test includes saying no to sin, like Jesus's when he was in the wilderness for 40 days, like other times, then temptation must come, but he cannot be the agent of temptation. Consider for a moment the book of Job. The book of Job is one of my favorite books where the godly, righteous man Job is brought before God by Satan and actually, well, God's the one who brings him up. Job is a righteous man. He's faithful. He fears God is what the book tells us. Satan comes before God and, sa- and, and God says, Hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? God brings him up. Says, have you considered my servant Job? He's righteous. There's none like him in the land. He fears the Lord or he fears God and shuns evil. He's just bragging on how faithful Job is. And Satan says to God, well, does Job worship you for nothing or does Job serve God for nothing, or does Job fear God for no reason is literally what's written there. Does Job fear God for no reason? No, he fears you. We all know because you've placed a hedge of protection around him. You've blessed him and prospered him. Of course he fears you and serves you. Of course he's righteous and faithful because look what you've done for him. And he says, but strike him and he'll curse you to your face. There is a test forming in the opening chapters of this story. And so God says to Satan, all that he has is yours, just don't touch him. And Satan becomes the agent of affliction and destruction in this testing of Job's faith. And the first wave of suffering strikes Job. Satan brings this destruction. And Job responds by ripping his clothes weeping and grieving and sorrow over the suffering that came in like a flood. And he says this, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the author goes on to say, and in all this, Job did not sin by blaming God wrongly. Notice again, the message there is, is Job gonna sin and curse God in the midst of the crucible of affliction. And he remained faithful. In fact, the next wave of suffering comes where Satan says to God, well, if you let me touch his body, then he'll curse you. And God says, okay, but don't take his life. And he's struck with boils and deep suffering, scraping them with jar pots that are broken. He's just wallowing, or not wallowing, he's, he's sitting in this grief and in this suffering. And even his wife is like, curse God and die, you loser. And Job speaks pretty strongly to his wife. And he says, will we not only, or will we only receive good from the Lord and not evil? Ooh, how do we handle that statement? We understand again therein that God for our good ordains some things that hurt, that are difficult, that are painful, as tests that prove our faith, that refine our faith, and he restores and rebuilds. I wish I could go further there. 
Notice in Matthew chapter four and verse one, I wanna highlight and remind us where it says this, then Jesus was led up by whom? Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by whom? By the devil. He was led by whom? It's on the screen, guys. It's an easy answer. (laughs) Who led Jesus into the wilderness? The Holy Spirit. Who tempted Jesus to sin? Satan. That's what the word declares. So, God leads us into situations sometimes where it's an opportunity for us to prove our faith in him, to be tested, wherein we will be tempted, not by him, but by Satan and or by our flesh as we will see. And it's an opportunity for us to resist, to say no, and show that Jesus is more treasureful to us than the sinful temptations that are coming our way. As we talk about this temptation In fact, if we go back to that verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Here we go, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured away or lured and enticed by what? His own desire. His own desire. I remember a story pretty vividly that my parents have told so many times because it's funny. Um, My oldest brother, Michael, when he was four years old, there was a time where they were outside playing. I wasn't born yet, so I've only had to hear the retelling of the story. But my parents have told it so many times. They're outside playing, my older brother, Jeremy, and Michael, and they're playing, having so much fun. You know how kids are. They don't want to stop having fun, keep playing. And all of a sudden, uh, my parents see my brother, Michael, walking like this. And there's this darker ring around his pants. Sorry, Michael, I love you if you happen to watch this. Didn't mean to put you on blast like this in front of my congregation, but uh, it's helpful. (laughs) And he obviously had wet his pants. And my parents said, Michael, come on, you're four years old, what happened? And he said, the devil rained on me. (laughs) It's funny. It's cute, and it is an elementary novel expression of what we like to do too, wherein we make sinful decisions based on our own desires, and then we go, oh, but the devil made me do it. No, James is saying, first, he's saying, don't, don't even dare blame it on God. Beyond that, hey, Sin comes from you being led away by your own desires or lured away. When I was in Arkansas growing up as a teenager, my absolute favorite pastime was bass fishing. We had a bass boat and I'd go out to the lake and I would take the the plastic artificial lure and throw it in the water and I would sit there and I would work it. And I would move it up and down and whip it and jerk it and do, try to make it do the right thing so that the bass who is hungry would see it and be lured into biting something that is artificial that they think is substantial and for their good. And a, a good appetite is lured away into something artificial that leads to their destruction, a.k.a. my live well, a.k.a. my belly, <laughs> Similarly, the desire 
for money can be neutral and even good in that you need to provide for your family. You need to move the kingdom of God forward. The desire for money doesn't have to be bad, but it can easily turn into greed, wherein Scripture warns us that money is not the root of, e of all evil. Scripture does say the love of money is the root of all evil, right? That neutral desire for money that can be good in honoring God is easily perverted and lured away by our own desires our own indwelling sin that is still there, our flesh that can pervert and lead us away into a neutral desire turning into a temptation that then conceives and leads to sin. Sexual desire is a good thing unto the glory of God. Amen. In God's design, in God's way, it easily by our internal fleshly desires can be lured away into lust that then conceives to sin through action. A good thing from God is lured away by our own desires is what James tells us. We have to be careful. Food is a good gift from God, right? Provided for our sustenance, for our nutrients, yet it can easily turn into gluttony. How? By our own desire for one more taste, one more bite, a little bit more, more than we need. Good things become sinful when our own desire lures us away and they become sin. Somehow, somewhere, desire conceives and turns into acts of sin. When desire conceives to sin, evil acts are ready to be acted upon. Sin is there, still dwelling within our flesh, waiting to pounce on our weakness. This is why Jesus is praying with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, guys, watch and pray. Peter, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Why? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, is what Jesus told Peter. Watch and pray so that you don't see that lure, but you see it as what it is and go, that's actually leading to the bass boat. That's actually leading to my destruction. It might look right. It might, I might be appetized by it, but it is damning for me. Lord, help me see it for what it is. Help me resist it. And there is still sin indwelling us, the flesh that we must fight. This is why the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Romans in chapter 6, he says, how can we continue to sin how can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? No, we must consider ourselves dead to sin. And we're like, all right, yeah, I'm dead to sin. And then in chapter 7, the very next chapter, Paul says, man, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Talking about I want to be good and righteous and sometimes I don't do that. And I don't want to do sin. I don't want to, I want to resist that. And sometimes I do. Who is this wretched man that I am? It's evident that sin is still dwelling in my members, in my flesh, he says. Who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus, saying, when you fail these tests, when you stumble, you're not condemned if your faith is still in Christ. Confess it, repent, turn, spit that hook out, and return to faithfulness in the Lord. And he's sitting here going, consider yourself dead to sin, yet sin is still dwelling in our body, which is why Romans 8 then says, which is why we walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. For the carnal mind is at enmity with God, an enemy of God. We must walk in the Spirit. And you guys have heard me say this illustration before. I'll say it one more time for visitors who are new. If you got two dogs and you starve one and feed the other and then they fought, which dog wins? The one that was fed. This is why Jesus says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation because the Spirit is willing the Spirit of God in you, new creation in Christ, is willing to resist that sin and say, no, that's a lure to destruction. But the flesh is weak. And if you're ruled by the flesh, if you always feed your flesh and starve your spirit, your flesh is going to win every time. We need the wisdom of God from the Word of God Verse 14 from Romans 8 said, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Meaning, you've got the Spirit of God in you leading you away from sin. That's evidence that you're a child of God. If you're just walking in the flesh, indulging in sin, it's time to evaluate. Circling back, God tests us to prove our faith. Sin tempts us to ruin our faith. There's a, there's a difference and there's a fine line. Remember, when God brings you to test, it's because he's excited to prove your faith. He's not trying to destroy you. Satan and sin and the flesh come in to try and do the opposite of lead us astray, lead us into destruction, wherein we are responsible to say no. God tests us with our best interest in mind. He wants to grow us. He wants to strengthen us. He wants to purify us. While Satan tempts us with our destruction in mind, he wants to destroy us. He wants to ruin us. When temptation comes, God always provides a way of escape. I'll read it quickly. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Did you catch that? Next time you are tempted with sin, just remind yourself, man, if I'm facing temptation, it means that I'm able to resist it. It says that God won't let me be tempted more than I'm able to stand. And so this idea that I have to just keep succumbing to that same temptation over and over again because I just can't help it. I guess that's just who I am. I guess I'm just weak that way. No, Paul's saying God won't let you be tempted more than you can stand. And he will provide a way of escape. So next time you're tempted to sin, stop for a moment and go, wait a minute. God thinks by his grace and by his spirit at work in me that I can say no. He has provided a way of escape. I could be like Joseph and run. I don't have to say, okay, Potiphar's wife. I can say, no, 
and run away and remain faithful and steadfast in that trial unto the glory of God and not our own glory. You want an absolute game changer in your war with temptation and sin? Here's a game changer for you. Stop seeing sinful desires merely as temptations and see them as tests or opportunities to prove your faith in Christ. Next time you're tempted to sin, go, oh, here's an opportunity for me to show the Lord that I delight in him, in him more than sexual pleasure. Here's an opportunity for me to show the Lord that he's better than money. Here's an opportunity for me to show Jesus that I treasure him more than one more bite of food. Here's an opportunity to show the Lord that I value and treasure him more than that morsel of gossip. Here's an opportunity to show the Lord that I treasure him more than fill in the blank of whatever temptation might come your way. Every time you are tempted to sin, it's an opportunity to prove your faith in Christ. And because Jesus passed the ultimate test in the garden and on the cross. He empowers us to pass our daily tests. And as we close, God has not left us alone to wage war against sin. He's not left us alone on our own ability to, to tame this dragon that he slayed. And so we must ask him for wisdom. We must see it from his perspective. We must ask the Holy Spirit to fill us and empower us to resist and say no. We must ask the Lord, God, would you stir my affections for Jesus? I want to treasure you more than these trinkets and toys and momentary pleasures. I know they're fleeting. I know they're momentary. Your word shows me that's true. In the moment of temptation, would you make me strong? Consume the word of God to feed your spirit. Spend time in prayer to feed your spirit. Spend time with other believers to feed your spirit. So when that temptation comes, you can say no. I'm going to give you guys an opportunity as we close today. I'm going to pray. And in just a moment, Rachel and Michael are going to lead a song. And I want to invite you to do something. As I dismiss... You can do one of three things. Many of you today, maybe the Holy Spirit has pricked your heart in this war against sin and you feel a way in which you need to confess, you need to sit and have a talk with the Lord for a moment and say, Lord, I've, I've stumbled, I've fallen short, I've sinned against you with this. Would you forgive me? And he will say yes. But you need to have that conversation with him. Some of you might wanna come down front and come to the altar and just kneel and pray. And, and if you get up and leave, please be respectful and be quiet of those who are trying to stay. Another option for you is maybe you're here this morning and you're going, man, I'm hearing this and, and I believe, maybe for the first time, I believe that Jesus is God, that he's the savior, that he paid for my sin and, and I wanna follow him. If that's you, Similarly to the other person, you can sit in your seat or come down front and confess sin and say, I want to turn away from it. I want to repent. The refrain of scripture is repent and believe. If you want to turn away from sin and death and turn to following Jesus Christ and being saved by his grace, it is repent of your sin and believe in him. And the next command you are given is to be baptized. 
And so the second thing, maybe some of you this morning might be sitting here and going, it's day, it's time for me to be serious. It's time for me to stop just having this idea of, of, of a God or believing that a God could exist, but recognizing the Jesus of the Bible is the savior of the world. And I wanna give my life to him for you. As soon as we dismiss, I would ask you to go to our website, wog.church, click up at the top where it says grow, and then click on baptism. And let us walk with you in that first step of obedience and getting baptized. You in your seat, confess and repent, and we want to walk with you. Get signed up. No more playing games. Let's do it today. And then thirdly, if you feel that you don't have something to work out with the Lord, praise God, you can stay and worship with this song for a moment. Make sure and don't leave your kids lingering too long with our awesome kids workers. God, we thank you for your word that shines light into our hearts, for your Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin, yet also your Holy Spirit that draws us and woos us and draws us to Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, you've made forgiveness available for our sin if all we do is confess and repent of it. God, I ask that today, if someone has not known you, that by your spirit, you would quicken them right now, open their eyes, let them confess their sin and turn away from it and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And God, if there's any who have not followed you in obedience of baptism, give them the, the conviction, give them the boldness, give them the unction to obey you in water baptism making that public declaration of faith. God, ultimately for all of us, I ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would lead us by your spirit, that we could resist the flesh, resist temptation, and live lives of holiness, pleasing and honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen.